from the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hi, this is Ben Terrace coming from The Washington Post. Hi, Jeff. Miss Winfrey, Oprah. Hi there. How are you? It's Lisa Bonas calling from The Post. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Thursday, May 6th. Today, Facebook's ongoing Trump problem, recruiting tactics of far-right extremists, and the death of the vacant middle seat. So basically, a decision came down on Wednesday, a much-anticipated decision about Trump's Facebook account. Elizabeth Dwoskin is the Silicon Valley correspondent for The Post. And the decision was made by this kind of bizarre body of experts that Facebook has essentially hired to outsource its hardest content moderation decisions. We are deciding to uphold Facebook's decision uh, to remove Mr. Trump from the platforms. Uh, We thought that was a right decision. Uh, Looking at the post from the 6th and 7th of January, we felt that was a right decision. And we looked at it from uh, Facebook's own community standards and the human rights uh, laws that they want to abide by. So they didn't ban him permanently. And they also didn't tell Facebook to let him back on. Um, Actually, they punted the decision back to Facebook and said, this is... This is in your court, and we're recommending that you take six months to come up with a rationale to either reinstate his account or ban him permanently. But whatever you do, you need a better rationale than the one you had before, which was basically based on extenuating circumstances and was not written anywhere in Facebook's policies. Like Facebook has a policy that governs speech and says you can't incite violence on our platform. But they don't have anywhere written that they do these things called indefinite bans. And before we talk about that decision, I I want to understand a little bit more about this, this board. Like, what is the Facebook Oversight Board? So the Facebook Oversight Board is like this very weird entity, basically this brainchild of CEO Mark Zuckerberg who came up with the idea in 2018, where basically the company is getting so much flack at this point for Russian disinformation, all these problems with misinformation, and also a lot of people complaining that their content is being taken down unfairly, and they've become a political punching bag. And there's also a lot more conversation about how should we regulate social media? Can we regulate social media? So in that context and conversation, They come up with this idea of creating a third party, kind of a third way, not regulation and not us. We don't want to be in the position of making these choices. Everyone's saying, God, we make the wrong choices. Well, we don't want to be in that position, but we are in that position. We've gotten so powerful. That's how their argument goes. And so they decided to fund through an independent trust, $130 million, this outside panel of experts that basically is independent, but does get paid by Facebook, and they also have a hand in selecting the experts, who will basically take up the thorniest decisions that Facebook might have to make. So issues where there's the toughest possible call for Facebook to make. And um, those could be decisions where Facebook took down content unfairly and people want an appeal, or it could be Facebook itself that wants the answer to a question and Facebook can refer a case. 
But again, that all remains to be seen because Facebook doesn't have to take any of these recommendations. They are voluntary and that's how Facebook structured it on purpose. Oh, really? So this oversight board, even though it's being considered like the Supreme Court for Facebook, this ultimate arbiter of what should and should not be allowed on this social media platform, like it's not actually mandatory that that their decisions don't have to be enacted. What is mandatory is the ruling on the specific piece of content. So does this content stay up or down, this one piece? They do have a binding ruling. They're allowed to be, you know, to mandate that Facebook reinstate a piece of content or take one down. But the policy recommendations, the things that would actually change the DNA of the company, potentially, those things are just voluntary. And Facebook structured it that way. So there's a bit of a bait and switch happening where this company really wants to get a pat on the back for doing this. And they want you to call it their Supreme Court. And yet they have not given it anything like that kind of level of power over it. So what does this decision mean for other politicians and especially politicians who have been known for making incendiary comments on social media? People like Ted Cruz, Marjorie Taylor Greene and her conspiracy theories, Josh Hawley. Does this change anything for them? So right now, no, but I think it all depends on how Facebook interprets these recommendations. And again, that's why I don't want to give it so much stock because they're just voluntary recommendations. And a lot of the people on this board are big fans of free speech. They're big advocates of free speech. And so they're actually not telling Facebook to clamp down on that. They are telling Facebook to clamp down very seriously on voices and accounts that can lead to violence and harm. But we as a society are kind of in the process of rethinking and reckoning around when speech leads to harm. Because we all saw many calls in the months before the Capitol riot. We all saw many calls to delegitimize the election. And many people, despite red flags, did not anticipate that there would actually be an insurrection. And so we all as a country, and particularly the powerful forces like Facebook, need to really rethink that line between free speech and violence. Elizabeth Dwoskin is the Silicon Valley correspondent for The Post. The story was produced by Jordan Marie Smith. I'm Mark Fisher. I'm a senior editor at The Washington Post, and I write about uh, any number of things, including extremism. The Last Battle is a six-minute video that is kind of bouncing around online. It's available on some far-right discussion groups. You find it on some gaming sites. And what it is, is a very fast-cut, pretty professionally produced, clever little piece of propaganda in which far-right extremists present themselves and kind of recruit followers by 
kind of leading people slowly into their worldview, starting off with the kinds of social issues and culture wars questions uh, that are pretty common in much of conservative America. Images of strippers and public nudity and children dressed in drag, kind of symbols of a society that's uh, in moral freefall, if you will. And then it quickly morphs into much more lurid and extreme images of black people committing crimes, of attacks on white people, of bogus allegations of election fraud, of Jews purportedly being in control of the world. So it moves rapidly from reasonably conservative mainstream notions and battles into really far-right extreme racism. So where did this video come from? Well, we don't know who made it. We know where it is. I got it from a researcher who works on uh, investigating extremism, and he found it on any number of sites uh, that are geared at kind of recruiting or comforting or simply entertaining people who might be susceptible to extremist messages. Uh, so a lot of those are gaming platforms, so other social media. The big platforms, Facebook and Twitter, are uh, have become less comfortable places for some of these folks to hang mm. out. Uh, so they've found each other primarily on gaming sites, but also in curious places like uh, places where people talk about loneliness or places where people talk about depression or autism, any kinds of places where people might assume to be looking for companionship, looking for camaraderie, looking for folks who understand uh, that they've perhaps been bullied or excluded in some fashion. And what is this video trying to get people to do or to believe? I don't know that it's trying to get people to do anything so much as it is trying to get people comfortable with some very extreme notions, trying to make the connection for people between some of the fairly ordinary frustrations or questions or mysteries they have about American life and to get them to make the pivot into thinking that there are people to blame for these problems in our society. And those people hmm. happen to be people unlike yourselves. And that is specifically Jews and blacks and foreigners and immigrants and people like that. You mentioned that some of the people who seem to be engaging with videos like these are people who are just lonely or seeking some kind of community. Can you talk more about that, like the reasons why people might be attracted to some of this extremist propaganda might not actually just be about their political views? Yeah, what was really striking to me, the more I talked to people who were associated with some of these far-right groups, was that they didn't know a whole lot about the ideology. They didn't even hmm. really care a whole lot about the ideology. They had found each other and they enjoyed each other. And this fit in very well with a bunch of other reporting I've done over the year, last year and a half on COVID and the impact on people, uh, the isolation, the social isolation that people have felt. So what we're seeing happening here was these far-right groups are taking advantage of that isolation and of that social distancing, extreme social distancing, and are reaching out to people who feel 
by themselves. And so a lot of the messages that might have fallen flat in the past, they're opening your borders, they're humiliating your race, they're coming for your guns, all those kinds of things. Those We've heard those messages a zillion times, but they're connecting with people more because the people who are saying it to these newcomers are also saying, hey, how are you doing? You, you want to join us? Why don't you come uh, spend some time with us uh, both online and then in person as well? Yeah, I'm curious more about how that process works. Like, how are these people identified and how do the people who are trying to spread this propaganda, like, find potential people who they think that they can persuade? Well, they're finding them in very ordinary places. They're finding them on gaming platforms. Uh, so the recruiter, uh, just like the other players, may love a particular game. Uh, it may be a first-person shooter game. It may be a, some other game with a lot of violence or some political content or some military or police content. And they'll look in the chat rooms on those platforms and they'll say, hmm, here's somebody who's mal off against Antifa or against the leftists or against Black Lives Matter, and they'll see that as a as a potential mark, as a target. And so they'll engage that person and say, hey, I feel the same way. And they'll, and they'll send them uh, some funny meme. They'll send them a series of jokes, a series of videos for, that uh, lure people into more extreme kinds of racist views. And You'll see a conversation about a song, two people bonding over their love of a particular band. And then the recruiter will say, hey, if, if you love that band, let me tell you about another one. And that other one that they're talking about uh, will be one that has more overtly racist kinds of lyrics uh, or is really, uh, you know, a band that plays at white power festivals. Or someone will say, hey, you know, I love going to this rock festival and the conversation will be steered toward a white supremacist uh, rock festival that's going on. Uh, so the pivots are not huge. They're not dramatic. It's not like, oh, you seem like uh, someone who who thinks like me. Let me tell you about my vision of a, a white nation in the United States. No, it's not that. It's hmm. really a way of kind of bringing them into a shared pop culture. And only after the person has said, oh, this is really cool, and they see that this person is open to that sort of politically incorrect material, then they'll hit them with harder, uh, more political stuff. But that may take months to happen. Only later will they hit them with the kind of propaganda piece that, uh, that like this six-minute video that we were talking about. In some ways, I think it's really difficult or complicated to try to pull apart those different motivations for how people can be radicalized like this. Because yes, in some ways it is finding this sense of community, feeling less lonely or feeling like there are just like people out there who don't think you're weird and, and who understand you and feel something akin to friends. But at the same time, like, I don't know if I necessarily buy that as like an excuse or a substitute to the sense that these are people who are also holding latent either misogynistic or xenophobic or racist sentiments that have finally gotten the opportunity to share the views that were always there. Well, you hit on exactly the right word, which is latent. So sure, in order to be open to the message, in order to be susceptible to being brought into a, a radicalization process, they have to have those latent attitudes. But in many cases, not most cases, they are latent. And, and these are people who have not expressed those views online or even necessarily in person. And so what 
uh, the recruiter is doing is taking those latent attitudes and turning them into something that the person feels more comfortable expressing because suddenly they have a community where it's okay to say those things. They've taken a lot of their lessons from Islamic jihadists uh, who use extremely similar methods to draw mm. out shy, lonely Muslims around the world, many of whom have never said anything violent, never said anything against the country that they live in, and they are brought in through these same kinds of uh, mechanisms to uh, express those views, to hold those views that they never knew they had before. So you can argue about whether those latent views were inevitably going to express themselves in some violent or ugly form. I think in most cases, most of the people I've spoken to who have come out of this or who are still in it, they say they never would have gotten there if someone hadn't helped them there along the way. Hmm. So then what is the solution here? The What are the ways that people can either be prevented from encountering these groups and being persuaded by them, taken in, or how we're supposed to de-radicalize the people who've already started to become enamored with these online groups? Well, prevention is a whole lot easier than de-radicalization. Uh, there is no silver bullet for de-radicalization. Prevention is about taking the fringe and putting it back on the fringe, the fringe that has moved into the mainstream in recent years, the whole idea of social media companies taking responsibility for their content uh, would go a long way toward uh, making it less likely that some of these people with those latent attitudes would have the opportunity to move into a real extremist kind of expression. But the de-radicalization piece is so much harder. And I think a lot of people who are working on that find that there are ways to connect with people by creating alternative communities for them by showing them that there are people who care about them, who will spend the time understanding their frustrations, understanding uh, what made them go searching in the first place. And and that is something that has to be done on a very one-on-one, individualized sort of basis. There's no program for right-wing radicals who can you know suddenly just read something and be out of it. And I think that's a challenge that, frankly, many of us are facing right now around the country and, and maybe even around the world of of seeing people in our lives, people that we love or people that we thought highly of who have been radicalized in ways that are difficult to comprehend. And there is a feeling of not being clear on how to pull them back from from the edge. Right. There's no surefire method of pulling them back from the edge. I think What's becoming clear is there are certain there are certain things that can be avoided that make it more likely that someone will come out on their own. So, for example, you know, I think we went through several years during the Trump administration where a lot of people on the left wanted Trump supporters to cry uncle and say, oh, I made a terrible mistake. Uh, please forgive me. That's never going to happen. And so I think it's pretty clear from the research that when you allow people to come out of it on their own and don't sort of shove their face into it and and say, you must now say you made a terrible mistake. That makes it more likely, if you avoid that kind of confrontation, makes it more likely that people will come out of it. I think most of the people who've been de-radicalized say there was a person who was crucial to their realizing that they didn't want to be there anymore. 
And uh, that person was sometimes a stranger and sometimes a relative and sometimes a friend, uh, but it was always one person who was incredibly patient and empathetic and understanding who uh, helped them come out without making them say any sort of formal mea culpa. Mark Fisher is a senior editor at The Post. The story was produced by Renny Svernovsky. And now, one more thing about the end of an era in pandemic travel. Delta Airlines is no longer blocking the middle seats on their flights. So last weekend became the new era of no social distancing on planes. The last airline to block middle seats stopped that practice. And basically now all of the airlines in the U.S. are filling up all of their seats and they're doing it eagerly. That is travel reporter Hannah Sampson. She's been reporting on how airlines have been adapting and trying to lure back customers since the very beginning of the pandemic. It was about that time they started introducing masks, but they also said, look, we're going to keep you distance from people. We're going to block the middle seats. We made a decision early on that we were going to deploy distancing procedures on board our airplanes so no middle seats will be sold on, on Delta aircraft. Maybe that will convince you, even though you're in this tiny tube with 100 plus strangers, since you won't be sitting next to a stranger, maybe it will be okay. Customers are telling us they appreciate that comfort. And as a result of that, people are coming back to Delta and the strength of the brand is improving. So why have all these airlines now abandoned this thing that had made people feel more comfortable? I mean, for the vast majority of travelers, the promise of, like, having no neighbor in the middle seat was not enough. There were days at the lowest levels of travel when there were fewer than 100,000 people going through the TSA in a day, as opposed to, like, 2 million people a day before. So it's really easy to leave your middle seat open when not enough people are booking your flights to fill a plane anyway. It got to the point where they were getting more business, and so they could fill the seats, and obviously they're economically hurting, so they decided, like, let's go for it. What really struck me about the decision to block the middle seats is that nobody likes the middle seats. Like, nobody <laughs> likes being in the middle seat. Nobody likes having someone in the middle seat next to them. And so as much as this was a public health measure, or you could even argue like public health theater, because it's questionable whether it really makes a difference in terms of the air you're breathing. But but it was kind of like a nice thing. One of the few tiny pleasures of the pandemic that when you fly, it would be slightly less horribly crowded. Right. I don't think anyone was thinking like, yay, legroom. But I mean, it's true. There was a lot of flexibility for a while. And I think that airlines will still be a little more flexible about refunds and about being able to change your date. I think that will continue for a while, maybe even in some cases for a very long time. And that would be a win for consumers. But 
One of my colleagues was flying last week, I think, and she just kind of kept a running log of all of the misery. The woman running through the airport trying to catch her flight, the people doing shots at the airport bar, the overflowing toilet, the faucet that didn't work. It was just like every horrible thing you can imagine that is inconvenient and gross happening all over again. And it was just like, you know, okay, air travel is back. <laughs> maybe you missed it for the last year plus, and maybe you didn't, but don't expect it to be any different. The airline experience you used to love to complain about is not going anywhere. It's just waiting for you <laughs> to be back. Hannah Sampson is a reporter for By the Way, a travel section at The Post. This story was produced by me, Martine Powers. That's it for Post Reports. Thanks for listening. Today's show was mixed by Renny Svernovsky. Post Reports has been nominated for a Webby, a very cool award for excellence on the internet. An episode of ours is nominated in the best news and politics podcast category. To win, we need people to vote for us, and we would love if you could help. Thursday is the last chance you'll have to cast a vote. Find a link to the Webby Awards in today's show notes and at postreports.com. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. 